Hello, and welcome to the Catholic Folk Project podcast. I'm Marielle, and this is my co-host, Emma. (laughs) (laughs) We're here with our debut um, podcast, talking about St. Michael. Um, But before we get into our main episode, we wanted to talk a little bit about what this podcast is about, and what we're going to be covering, and who we are. So, both of us are cradle Catholics who have a lot of interest in tradition and we're really interested in the cycles of fasting and feasting have been done historically and continue to be done uh, in Catholic community and through some through some digging into uh, our shared Irish ancestry uh, we've been looking at Uh, these traditions and how we can bring them into our daily lives and our own devotion and practice. So uh, we wanted to share this journey with the people. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Have anything to... um, Yeah, so... (laughs) Should we introduce ourselves? Yeah, sure. Let's introduce ourselves. So um, my name is Marielle. I've been Catholic since I was probably like six months old um (laughs) and I uh I have I I did some study in college my main uh sources my main studying was in art practice uh visual arts and I also delved a lot into folklore and uh ethnography so the study of vernacular cultures cultures of place um and so a lot of that has has led me to this it um, I'm by no means an expert, but I love culture and I love people and stories. So, yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and as Mariella said, um, I'm Emma. Um, I am also a cradle Catholic, um, currently a Catholic worker at the Simone Veil Catholic Worker here in Portland. We're both in Portland, Oregon. Um, my own interest in this stuff comes from my, yeah, as Mariella said, my upbringing in an Irish Catholic family and having a sense for for some of the devotional practices of of my family, uh, but re- recognizing that a lot of that had been lost, and that especially in my own experience of day to day Catholic life, you know, would know knew what the saints were, went to Catholic school, you know, did the whole dress up as a saint for <laughs> for All Saints Day sort of thing, but never, but never really engaged with the saints in a way that felt like this this whole calendar of saints feast days was like infusing my life. Uh, would have my patron saint. Everyone in my family is either Margaret Cecilia or Cecilia Margaret. So I'm Emma Cecilia Margaret Coley. Um, but so I had a sense of patrons there, but not a sense again of, of the saints that that can just or the fact that like, we're continually celebrating um, the the faith and models of faith. Um, yeah, and so in college I studied um, religion, uh, mostly anthropology of religion, ethnography. Um, and also some scriptures. So studied um, Hebrew at an undergraduate level. So again, by no means an expert here, but I'm really excited about uh, scripture and how um, we we can read it and pray with it and see it interpreted and reinterpreted um, across um, across generations. And especially, yeah, coming to read scripture as our as our family story. And of course, we we are the family of God um, along along with the saints. And so being able to get to know the saints from from that perspective 
um, and as well as our first saint here, who happens to be in scripture, uh, one of the oldest saints that we could have started with. Right, so. and, and sort of the most non-human saint that we could have started <laughs> with. Yeah. So in, in a lot of ways, non-traditional as, as saints go, because we tend to think of saints as people um, who are, have lived a holy life. Um, and, and this one happens to be as we receive in scripture, is a saint, but yet is not human. <laughs> yeah, so someone that, so a non-human um, that we can call upon for intercession, that we can dedicate churches to, that we can, I don't know, that we invoke, whose name we invoke in prayer. Um, all of the, the characteristics are really ways of engaging with saints, all applied to St. Michael. So um, as we go through each episode, so our hope is to release one episode a month, um, connected to a saint whose feast day is that month, uh, with the idea that this podcast might be a way that you too might be able to learn about, pray with, um, and explore folk practices related to um, the celebration of the life of that particular saint. Um, our basic podcast structure will be oriented around uh, four main questions. The first is simply, who is the saint? Um, questions like, sub-questions like, when they lived, uh, what they're the patron of, or their basic attributes, or other words, and how you would um, recognize them in an icon or other work of art. I should have also mentioned, um, I'm also a student iconographer, so learning iconography, so I'll bring some of that, um, and recently worked on an icon of St. Michael. Uh, yeah. But the second question we'll explore is, what was their life like or their personality like? Um, again, with St. Michael, that will be an interesting question. Um, the third, how does the saint interact with people generally? Um, so there we might mean, um, so there we typically mean after um, the death of that saint, so any uh, miracles associated with them, apparitions, or other intercessions that have been granted, or healings yeah. in associated landscapes, uh, or bodies of water, yeah. <laughs> as may yeah. be the case. <laughs> yeah. And then lastly, what are the folk traditions or practices that developed around this saint, and how might we honor or celebrate them, or, and how have people honored and celebrated them um, across generations? And again, as Marielle said, our emphasis here will be on especially on like the folk practices of Western Europe, um, because part of this for us is exploring our own um, family family stories. Right, and we may be expanding at some point, but we're gonna start. We're gonna start with what we know, um, what we know uh, from our, our own histories. So, and we know that Catholicism is very broad and encompasses most, if not all, cultures across the world. So, which is wonderful and beautiful. Makes me very excited. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So to start off with maybe why we chose St. Michael as the first. Right. There are a couple of things that coincided here. One um, was, again, I was working on this this icon of St. Michael um, as part of an iconography class I was in. And throughout that process, had a really powerful experience of prayer, um, both while I was painting, but then also with the St. Michael chaplet, which we'll talk about later, and really beginning to feel yeah, his presence as an intercessor and as a protector. And so a big part of, or major part of preparation for each of these episodes uh, for us will be, you know, doing research and all of that, but especially just praying with the saint and sort of seeing what, what emerges from that prayer and sharing some of that experience with, um, with all of you. <laughs> um, and so a lot of people, I think, at least my only exposure to St. Michael prior to doing, writing that icon and doing this research, um, was the St. Michael prayer at the end of Mass. Right, which doesn't happen at everywhere. Like, yeah. I have never grew up doing that, except for, like, there's a couple churches in town who do it, and I never really encountered that until I was 
maybe like 18. Yeah. I've never ever seen it. Yeah, because I think it was recently that it was the the Pope asked churches to start praying the St. Michael prayer, mm-hmm. I think in response to, well, for the protection of life, but then I think also in part in response to the sexual abuse crisis right, right. in the Catholic Church. So Michael, as we'll talk about later, is one, one of his major roles is, is as defender of the church. Right. Um, and, of, and, and like angels generally as protectors of, of people um, against the forces of evil. <laughs> prowl around the world <laughs> seeking the ruin of souls okay so um but the same michael prayer i don't know about your experience mariel but for me i always felt like okay so we end mass and sort of like whoa where is this coming from yeah because like of, the, the yeah. kneelers go down yeah. and you're like yeah. oh no where am i yeah. yeah and with like the sort of tone that we both sort of just took right it's this like all of a sudden you're in a different world than you yeah. know whatever your post-mass announcements just were like come to coffee and donuts now St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. (laughs) Yeah, or like even, and sometimes it's even after the hymn, like the announcements, you have like, oh, come to Coffee and Donuts, and then like, a hymn. Well, build the city of God. Build the city of God, and then boom, St. Michael, defend us, and you're like, oh no. (laughs) Where did that come from? So all of these things came together, piqued our curiosity, and we just think this would be a good place to begin to explore folk Catholicism, especially as, yeah, the saint is in many ways, like, well, the patron saint, one of the patron saints of the church, but also just... A saint that has sort of reemerged in our times as a as a major source of, of popular devotion, and also or subject of popular devotion. Also, like uh, Saint Michael's feast day, September 29th, which is coming up soon, will is traditionally has this this central uh, place as a marker of the seasons and this place of of a turning into fall and a, a end of the harvest season or a start of the fall harvest and just a really big turning point in the year and um so this this sort of height height around this as a like this time is a point of celebration and um and of, of turnings as that doesn't really seem to be so much in the, the consciousness especially here in america um people don't necessarily have that marker i mean we have like the pumpkin spice latte at starbucks <laughs> but not so much saint michael's day so yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah so that's definitely those are the sort of main points of interest that got us into like oh we gotta we gotta meet this person yeah <laughs> so let's jump in with our first question who is saint michael um so first of all as we said earlier saint michael is not a human um, but an angel um, so let's start first by talking a bit about um, who, or first of all, what an angel is in general um, in the Catholic tradition, um, going back to, to the scriptures themselves. So the word angel literally means messenger. Um, that's true in both the Hebrew and the Greek. It is for this reason um, that St. Augustine says when he's writing about angels that the word angel isn't the name of a being so much as it's the name um, of an office or a role. And in fact, there are humans described as messenger or as angel um, in scripture because it really does describe describe a role here so angel is actually what these beings do right what they do is the one being sent not unlike christ (laughs) is really inseparable from who they are so that's why it is also appropriate the fact that we call them by their role Um, they are ones who are sent they are messengers Um, So following this, the Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, formally defines angels as, quote, spiritual, personal, and immortal creatures with intelligence and free will who glorify God without ceasing and serve him as messengers of his saving plan. 
So you can hear that, that crucial word there, messengers, um, but also that, yeah, that despite being non-human, they share a lot of characteristics of, of humans, angels do, including like free will and personality and intelligence, uh, right. which is really important as we consider the, the life of St. Michael, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And the, like I've heard it sort of, I've heard people like sort of describe angels as like beings of light. Like there's, yeah. they don't have bodies in the way that we have, but they do have some of the stuff that, so there is like very significant differences of like interaction with this being, but, but uh, like free will is kind of a really interesting point that we connect on with angels. Yeah. So we can still speak of Michael's having like a biography um, to some extent, <laughs> and like, getting to know him, yeah. right? The same way we might get to know a human saint. Um, also, depending on which church father you ask, um, Michael isn't just any old angel. Um, he's considered by most to be the prince of angels um, or the leader of the angelic army. Um, so, right, which, which is sort of, I mean, if you've, if you've ever gotten into like fantasy or some of those <laughs> graphics of angelology online, you might have seen like Archangel as like one of the lowest on the rung. So this... I mean, this seems like kind of a against that. Like, yeah, depends on who you ask. I think it's Saint Thomas Aquinas or Saint Bonaventure. Right. So, <laughs> so sometimes he's like one above your guardian angel, and sometimes he's. But he does have this role as like commanding yeah. the angelic host, the angel armies. Yeah, exactly. So his his main title um, in the Eastern Church, so his Greek title, the one that you'll see in icons is Archistrategos, um, which means highest general. Um, so that's where we get um, archangel to, highest, highest right. of the messengers, um, and also highest general. So you'll see that title in a lot of Greek, or icons with Greek inscription. Okay. Um, and so along that line, if you're looking um, out for him in icons or other religious art, uh, something of what he, he looks like, in, again, in, in the tradition. <laughs> So despite being um, a spiritual being without a body, he's often depicted as a young beardless man, um, which is why, yeah, we talk about him as him here. <laughs> that's, that's deep in the church's tradition. Um, he'll typically have wings, but actually not always. Oh. Um, and these wings um, symbolize his role as messenger and intermediary between the heavenly and earthly realms. Um, like all of the other archangels, he'll also have uh, like a headband, like a ribbon mm -hmm. around his head. Um, and the ribbon will end sort of floating near his ears. So you'll see these two kind of tassels near his ears. And um, that symbolizes that Michael is unceasingly attentive to the word of God. So again, he's this, he's a creature who responds perfectly to, to the word and command of God. He is, he is the one who is sent. He is, he is a true messenger. And the, those, um, those like visual cues probably like in the Greek, you would think they have some correspondence to Hermes. Yeah. The messenger god of Greek paganism. Yeah, so a lot of the roles we'll talk about that are attributed to Michael um, are off also roles that were attributed to Hermes, um, which we'll get at get to in a minute there. Yes, cool. it's a great connection. And you'll also he'll also usually be depicted in a soldier's attire, usually in red, accented in gold to emphasize his his heavenly heavenliness. Um, and he'll often have a rod or sword in his hand um, because he is the the leader of the army is always about ready to, to fight Satan. Sometimes he's actually, you know, stabbing <laughs> Satan, usually in the mouth. Uh, other times, well, we'll talk about them. He has all these other iconographic depictions um, that depend on which one of his four main offices he's being depicted as, as doing in that particular icon or work of art. 
So that brings us to our next question, which is, what does Michael tend to do in his interactions with humans? <laughs> so in the tradition of the church, uh, Michael is described, as I said, as having four main offices or responsibilities. The first is to fight against Satan. It's a pretty big one. <laughs> yeah, big, big deal. Um, that goes all the way to the book of Revelation, which we'll talk about um, here in a minute. The second is to protect God's people, as we were talking about earlier. That's to protect both the Jews as we see him. That's a role we see him playing in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Daniel, as well as the church, um, which is, again, the way he's invoked um, and the way that we pray the St. Michael prayer um, these days or in some churches at the end of Mass. Right. His third role, this is a fun one, um, is, is escorting the faithful to heaven at the hour of death. Um, this is his role as psychopomp or soul guide. Dude, <laughs> he could be like a... I don't know, a heavy metal band. Yeah, Psycho Pump. Yeah, dude. Yeah. And then lastly, to call souls from Earth to their heavenly judgment. Um, And this leads to that iconographic depiction of Michael as weighing souls. So he'll have these scales with a little, like, mummy soul baby bodies (laughs) (laughs) sitting in the scales. You'll see that's how souls are depicted, sort of wrapped up in these, in, like, the the burial cloths. Right. And so these offices, as I sort of mentioned are derived in large part from the four explicit references that we have to Michael in scripture. And so I'll get into those in a minute, but first to say that in addition to these four times that Michael is literally named in scripture, um, two in the Old and two in the New Testament, Michael is also identified by the tradition as the unnamed angel and several other scripture passages. So again, think about how tradition works here, right? Which is that we have this scripture, sometimes Michael's named, sometimes he's not. But nonetheless, like there's, we're part of this long tradition of reading scripture as the people of God in, in community, not as isolated individuals. And so because we're reading in community, we, can, we get to take on that, the tradition of our, of our forefathers, of our forebears, right. um, which includes these, yeah, especially like deeply symbolic readings of scripture and especially, yeah, so seeing Michael in his role and therefore, like, seeing his role playing out over and over again, and then identifying him right. with the scenes in which we see these, right. these patterns play out. Um, so, the four, so some of the other times we see Michael where he's not named um, is the first is he's often identified as the cherub God places at the gate of Eden with his, quote, flaming sword, which turned every which way. Yes. <laughs> um, to, quote, keep the way of the tree of life um, right after Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. So it's Genesis 3. Um, so the first time we see Michael, and we'll see this over and over again, Michael like at the boundary, um, right. whether that's the boundary between heaven and earth, or in this case, the boundary between Eden and everything outside of Eden. Yeah, or the boundary between life and death, death with, the exactly. with the souls. Yeah, exactly. Um, he's also often identified as the angel through which God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. So again, at that boundary, on the mountaintop, being that intermediary between God and man in a very explicit way. Um, and a funny one, he's also um, identified as the angel who stands in Balaam's way in that comedic story of Balaam's ass found in Numbers 22. Um, so he scares the donkey, um, where the donkey can see the angel, but the human can't. <laughs> and that's also like another current of Michael, which is Michael and the animals. Right. Um, well, often, often spiritual beings... Like in many traditions, spiritual beings are more readily apparent to non-human animals than to humans. Yeah, like your dog who can see ghosts. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there's also all these other stories associated with Michael as the yeah connection with animals, like turning an arrow away when someone was trying to shoot. I think it's an ox. Okay. Um, Michael's also sometimes seen as the angel who puts the um, 
the ram in the bushes um, at the scene of the sacrifice of Isaac. Oh, so preventing that, that alternate offering or, or giving um, Abraham that alternate offering. Um, and lastly, he's also seen as the angel who routes these enemy Assyrian armies in Second um, Kings chapter 19. So there again, his role as the defender of, of right. the Jewish people. And also someone who can, like, cause a whole lot of chaos, right. <laughs> which we'll see, see over again, sort of, like, scrambling the, the armies. Well, like, in strategy, like, strategic, yeah. like, in the way of military strategy. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so now like, we'll go back to those explicit mentions of Michael as we consider his biography. Um, so his name is recorded twice in the book of Daniel, where, again, we see him play the same role. So you'll get to, you'll see this pattern really clearly. Um, so in Daniel 10... Um, another angel, likely Gabriel, someone who's, or this angel is um, in the tradition seen as Gabriel, um, he recounts getting Michael's help to fight the angelic patron of Persia um, in defense of Israel. So there's this sense here that it's like whenever there's this human battle against evil, there's also this cosmic battle happening, like one level up <laughs> right. on this different, like, plane. Right, there's sort of like the echo of, like, uh, Satan being like the... the- uh, ruler of the world and these demons having like specific like patronage of countries yeah this is like still this is still in the in the idea um in the in the tradition that that like demons ha- would have some kind of sway over a particular country so this would be a, a personal battle between Michael and another demon, right? Yeah, exactly. So Michael, who's called the Prince of Israel in this case, and the Prince of Persia. And Persia is associated with lots of bad guys. So we're supposed to see, yeah, <laughs> that the Prince of Persia is not, not a great, great creature, whoever he right. is. Right. Like, now in the tradition, like, just to be clear, it wouldn't just be Persia. It would be, like, the U.S. It would be every country has a demon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so in Persia, it's, like, riches and I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Riches, I'm sure. power, political domination. Sounds like America. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then in Daniel 12, Michael is once again described as a prince, in this case, the guardian of Israel, who will stand up and stand over the righteous of Israel on the day of final judgment. This is the first time we see Michael associated with final judgment, the resurrection, afterlife, and protecting those who are who are righteous, those who he right. will weigh on his scale, and you know the <laughs> the scale will come out in, in the soul's favor, and will carry them off to heaven. Mm. Um, and then we encounter Michael twice in the New Testament. First is in the letter of Saint Jude, um, and this I find really fascinating. So Saint Jude here is actually referencing an apocryphal tale in which Michael contends with Satan over the body of Moses and the soul of Moses. So here Michael's portrayed as the one who defends the faithful against Satan in Satan's role as accuser. Um, And you might have heard this before, that Satan actually means accuser. Right, and that's in the legal sense. So like that you would be, he would be like the uh, plaintiff, I guess, or no, he would he would be the one who's charging someone <laughs> yeah. with an allegation of some kind. Yes. Um, and so so here Michael would be a defense attorney. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the particular um, accusation that Satan makes is that Satan um, is accusing Moses of murder. And remember, this goes all the way back to Exodus, where like Moses did kill an Egyptian man, right? So Satan is saying that because of that. I have control over Moses' body, like, he's in my domain. Um, Right, so this is a very legalistic, like, this is my jurisdiction. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And then we get Michael. And Michael does not engage in this juridical argument at all. He's not having any of it. Instead, and, and the text even says that, instead he invokes the Lord's name 
And the only thing he says are the words of God himself. Um, and he says, yeah. quote, the Lord rebuke you. <laughs> right. So then, so then he's also fulfilling his role as messenger. Yeah. Passing on what he has heard. Exactly. Yeah. And so this is a quotation of God's words to Satan in the book of Zechariah. So that's where this quote comes from. So you see here where Michael, even though we associate him with like the wayer of souls and sort of associate him with judgment, he's also like not Satan. If anything, he's combating Satan, not just as like Satan dragon or like those, right. this specifically as Satan accuser. He's not engaging in this sort of legalistic argument. Right. Right. So there are these different elements to, to Michael that we have to hold in tension, right? We see him as like the wayer of souls. And there's even this image of him as, um, so he's weighing the soul. And there's this old uh, medieval trope of, of Mary then stepping in. Um, and Mary will have, so you'll see this in some like statuary. Mary will have these two souls under her mantle right. in front of Michael with the, with the scales. And she'll actually place her rosary beads on the scales to weigh them in the soul's favor. <laughs> so she sort of is like, you know, what's the like... Tilting gonna, the... Can I just press on the scales a little bit? We're yeah. going to, like, fix it all. Yeah, we're going to fix no, it. mom's got your back. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it's so Michael, like, relative to Mary, sort of is the sort of, like, I am weighing you. I am, you know, acting, participating in the divine judgment, basically. Right. But also, it's interesting to think about how this doesn't happen in the way that Satan does this whole accusing thing. Right, yeah. Like, this is very much uh, sort of, like, a, a very different kind of, like, judgment that's going on it's not like we're gonna battle it out in court it's like we're gonna like present these things and weigh them at this with this like instrument that seems to be outside of any kind of argument you might have yeah and maybe moses's life would be a good example of this that yeah moses did kill an egyptian man right right and so there's like this juridical case with this like one piece of evidence Right. Versus Michael, who weighs the whole soul. Right? right, and then Mary is, like, giving him even more leeway with the <laughs> yeah. with the rosary beads. That it's not, I did this thing, therefore I'm evil, but it's the full content of a person's, of a person's soul. Right. Um, and the figure of Moses, obviously a multifaceted character, who at moments <laughs> is, like, deeply faithful to, to God, and all of that is taken, taken into right. account here. Just like all of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so then finally, we encounter Michael most famously in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. And also, I love this example because, once again, it highlights this close relationship um, between Michael and Mary uh, that really just keeps, just kept coming up as I was doing this doing this research. Right, which is also interesting because a while ago, I, I listened to a, I listened to some, a homily by someone who was in Los Angeles and talking about how Los Angeles is actually named after Mary hmm. um, because she is, it's, I forget exactly what the the name is, um, but in, in Spanish, but it's essentially like Mary is the commander of hmm. the angelic host and the yeah. commander of the angel army. So we see like these two different figures who command angelic armies, um, and Mary as the queen and Michael as the general, basically. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so these figures are always paired. The most famous image in the West where you see them paired is the um, Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Um, so really famous image that you probably have in your church it's like the most common icon in the west or most popular icon in the west and there michael is delivering the implements of the crucifixion mm-hmm. as mary is you know holding and protecting christ so we see this again their their paredness there in a very popular western right. image but back to revelation 12 so here we get um, a woman clothed with the sun a moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head who is this probably 
Mary. <laughs> yes, so you've probably seen seen that image before of Mary and statues where in where she'll have like the moon under her feet and mm-hmm. there's usually like crescent and then there's stars. There's all sorts of them. I love them. Yeah, so that that comes from Revelation chapter twelve. And so then um, this woman goes into labor and she's experiencing great labor pains, and a great dragon comes and emits this sweeps down a third of the stars from heaven and throws them down to earth. And then stands before the woman to devour her son, who is to, quote, rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So a powerful infant we have here. Sounds like someone we know. (laughs) Yes. And so the child is snatched away immediately once he's born and taken up to his throne in heaven before the dragon can harm him. And then the woman flees into the wilderness to, quote, a place prepared by God. And then Michael steps onto the scene. There's this war that breaks out in heaven, and Michael and his angels, quote, fight against the dragon and his fellow rebel angels. And then eventually, the, quote, great dragon is thrown down, the ancient servant who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So here we have Michael and Satan battling it out, um, and Michael is casting down Satan in the form of this great serpent down to earth, casting him out of heaven. Right, which is then where we would get the idea of dragon, because serpent and dragon, dragon are often linked. Yeah, exactly. And then, so the dragon, now that he's back down on earth, cast out of heaven, continues to pursue the woman who gave birth to the sun. And these verses are just so good at the end of this chapter. Um, and this image is really important for understanding little later Michael stories. Again, this image I kept seeing pop up um, in, these, in, his, um, in the stories of Michael's apparition. So I'm just going to read these few verses. So this is Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had borne the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood, But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river which the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Oh, so so we have definitely a motif of water coming out of this, and the sea, which we also find with Mary. Mary started the sea. Um, but it seems like lots of water. Yeah, exactly. And then I just love this because, like, this is the world we're in, right? It's like the serpent pursuing the offspring of this woman. Um, yeah, after he's you know angry that he was cast out of heaven and that he could right. you know eat the eat the baby. Right. So it's like <laughs> this is the world we're in, right? It's like pursued by pursued by this great accuser in the way that right. we were just talking about, right? And and deceived by him. So we're deceptive, like like our own thoughts about what we've been accused of and and how how whether that's right or not is is based on on deception as well so yeah and so then this brings us to our uh, to the final question that i will attempt to answer in this podcast (laughs) which is how does michael interact with people generally um so now we're talking about outside of the scriptural context how is he interacting with people in the world the world today the world of history um and so we're going to start with the story of Michael at Colossae, um, there because, or at Colossae because there is where we see that great image of the earth opening to swallow the waters that are trying to mm-hmm. wipe away that which is holy um, that we saw in the final um, verses of chapter 12. So I'm just going to quickly retell, retell the story. So 
This is a miracle, a very old miracle attributed to St. Michael that you see all over the place in Christian art. Um, and this is at a place called Colossae. Um, you might recognize that name from Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's that place. So by the fourth century, there was a church dedicated to Archangel Michael um, at the so- on the source of a natural spring that was associated with healing. And, um, uh, and then after that church is built, there's this boy called Archippos um, who travels to um, Colossae, to the, to the site of this holy spring in this church, to dedicate his whole life to God. Um, he takes care of this church and lives a very ascetic and holy life. Um, meanwhile, the story goes, there's an increasing number of pagans who come to the spring at Colossae and are converted to Christianity because of the ways that it's able to heal human ailment. And then when this um, holy man um, becomes old, the pagans around Colossae decide that they want to destroy the church in the spring. And so what they attempt to do is they divert the flow of two nearby waters, thinking that they could dilute this holy spring, and also to destroy the church, um, the church of this holy man. And so the story goes that for 10 days, they labor openly to divert these waters of this river to destroy the church. Um, And this holy man prays to St. Michael to protect him and his church and his community. And so um, as the roaring waters are finally approaching the church, ready to, ready to destroy it, uh, Michael comes fully armed and strikes the ground with his spear. <laughs> and the earth opens and just takes in all of the water uh, before it can hit the church. So it diverts the waters or it takes it in wow. um, to protect his church. Um, and so that's where you get this long association with Michael and Holy Springs, Ooh. Michael, defender of, of the church. Um, and again, this great image of the earth opening up to swallow, to right. swallow the waters of the flood, right? And of course, when, and that's the that's how it's described in in Revelation. Of course, we have to think there of like Genesis, like holding back the waters of, of decreation, basically. Yeah. And so that um, is one of these stories associated with Michael that has, um, yeah, it's major celebrates a major feast day um, for many many centuries in the church. And there's all these other stories and associations of Michael with water. You know, he saves a, a pregnant woman who goes into labor. Um, at Saint Michel, um, right, which is uh, sort of an island that gets uh, the tide comes in and separates the the Mont Saint Michel in France from the mainland of France, and so there's this. Um, if she's in the middle of that space, she's going to get swallowed up by the the waves. Yeah, so when the waves come in, Saint Michael um, is said to create this like shining barrier around her, so that way, in the midst of the water, so that way she can give birth safely. And so he doesn't actually appear, but she invokes his name, and and the shining barrier comes and blocks the waters. <laughs> um, there's another story at that same site of Mary doing the same thing, but Mary um, said the shining barrier. She um, holds the woman in the mantle of her garment. Right. Um, and creates this like wet womb-like space <laughs> where this woman can can give birth to her child. So again, a tie there between you know, Michael, water, Michael, Mary, um, and of course there there's so many other stories you could tell about Michael. The other one, famous one, is the story of the cave at Gargano, mm-hmm. um, which is a site in Italy where Michael is said to have actually consecrated his own church. Wow. Um, so it didn't need to be consecrated because he had himself had done it. Um, and this go. cave is associated with with healing the um, because of a. The healing of a plague that happened in that area. Um, so you might have heard about like that, the stones of St. Michael, which would be from Gargano. Um, so there are these famous relics. Also, St. Francis um, is said to have, he went to the cave, but then deemed he was unworthy to enter. <laughs> so he's, again, at the threshold of this cave. And Padre Pio actually used to send um, people there for healing. So it's okay. a site that we see, again, interpreted across the century. So these two other, it's associated with these two other, these two other more modern <laughs> saints. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah. We had yeah. to this site and to St. Michael. Cool. So, so we're definitely seeing a lot of water, a lot of battle imagery. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then surprisingly legal arguments and, and whether we're engaging with lawsuits. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's not the patron saint of lawyers. <laughs> no, he's yeah. not. He's actually a patron of policemen, I believe. Yeah. And military. And military. And I think tanners. <laughs> lots of, yeah. Lots, lots of, of associations. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, as we go into some more modern, um, stuff, you're going to see like sort of the way that this has been extrapolated into culture. Most of what I found was from the UK and Ireland. Um, but a lot of it also broadly applies to Western Europe. Um, the way that a lot of, uh, European folk tradition tends to spread is, uh, often mirrors the language groups. So, uh, coming out of Proto-Euro- Proto-Indo-European is like one of the oldest languages that we know about that comes, that all European languages descend from. And that came out of the sort of Middle East uh, area and, uh, and moved through, <laughs> through migration, human migration. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of those, uh, a lot of those language groups actually carry the same cultural ideas and stuff. So a lot of these things will maybe have a different a different permutation in a different culture um but most of what i have access to is either is written in english i have a little bit of french but um not in this <laughs> not in this particular stuff so most of what i can read comes from the uk and ireland for this type of thing so in in the uk and ireland there are these uh, and broadly across Europe, there are these days called the quarter days. Yeah. Um, and Michael Mass, or My- St. Michael's Mass, the day of the Mass of St. Michael, which is <laughs> September 29th. I didn't know that's where Mass comes from. Yeah, like, like so Christmas Christ's Mass. Oh, yeah, yeah. there we go. Yeah. So that, so yeah, you might, or Candlemas, you might yeah. have heard of. Yeah. So, so, the, so St. Michael's Day, um, it's actually pronounced Michaelmas, and I've only ever like I only ever read it so I always say it wrong but I think it's actually pronounced Michaelmas I just like I read it Michaelmas yeah. um anyway so so a quarter day is um St. Michael's Day is one of these quarter days and the quarter day separates the year into the four seasons so it's it's on the edge of all the seasons so uh St. Michael's Day is between summer and autumn and uh, in in Ireland, you might hear of cross quarter days, so something like you might have heard of Samhain as like yeah. the, uh, which is spelled Samhain, but that's not how you say it. Um, <laughs> so you might have seen that in connection with Halloween. Um, so those are the middle of each season. Uh, oh, so Samhain would be the middle. Of so like autumn. dividing the year into eight. Into seven. eight, okay. as, essentially. Uh, the quarter days tend to be a bit more British, and the cross quarter days tend to be a bit more Irish. Wait, so but... is it that they would celebrate the quarter days and cross quarter days? Or more like you pick one? Probably both. I mean, yeah. people want to celebrate, but you <laughs> yeah. tend to More see... excuses for a party. Yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, so anyway, 
So the quarter days were these big festivals that would be about the turning of the year. You'd have a lot of people whose rents are due. You'd have a lot of people who are changing jobs, seasonal jobs, seasonal labor, migrating for the harvest, migrating um, for various other days. Um, people want to find a spouse. It's a party. Great place <laughs> to find a spouse. <laughs> find some girls to hit on. Um you maybe you're uh looking to hire people you want to go there maybe you want to sell livestock there's a lot of things that happened at these um at these celebrations uh and still happen um maybe not so much about your rent (laughs) but maybe more about the party um you might be burning a bonfire you might be singing telling stories definitely dancing um drinking a lot (laughs) (laughs) do we mention that we're both irish (laughs) (laughs) It's also, yeah, and you'd be pressing the cider around this time, so gotta have it. Um, it's also the Ember Tide, which is an old uh, Catholic tradition of fasting before at the turning of the season. Um, this is mostly suppressed in today's uh, celebration and tradition, but um, you can still find some people who try to do it. Uh, it's a couple days. Uh, it's a it's a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Wait, no. Sorry. It's a Thursday. No, it's a Wednesday, Friday, Saturday fast. I'm sorry. Yeah. Wednesday, Friday, Saturday fast. Which are the church's traditional days of fasting, Which right? Which are traditional days. So, and it's, it's a, so on Wednesday you do, uh, like, similar to Ash Wednesday, you would do a fast of, you fast from meat and it's, it's you eat less than you normally would. And then um, on Friday, you, you would do it in an Apostles Fast, which is fasting from more things. It includes, like, wine and fish, I think. It's, it's a more intense fast. And then on uh, Saturday, you do the same fast as Wednesday. And so there's... And Thursday, you have off. You can... <laughs> Have your normal day. Yeah. So I imagine some people are thinking, oh, wait, I thought you just said it was a party. So why? Why are we fasting? Right. So so it's a good question. N- normally the, the ember tide, the ember tide is a, is a fast that is done usually before uh, one of these saints feast days that would have been a bigger party. Um, and so so the ember tide is sort of like in preparation for this yeah. this big party. And there's also a tradition of St. Michael's Lent, which is a, a fast sort of similar to Lent that goes from the Assumption to St. Michael's Day. So there's a lot of tradition about fasting in preparation for St. Saint, for Saint Michael's Day. Um, sorry to anyone who is thinking of doing that. It's a little late for that now. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but also, right, this makes a lot of sense. Like there's this like deep deeply rooted pattern which is that like fasting and feasting go together <laughs> right right it's like right now we often only have the feasting part of things like with like lent being some exception to that or you know the fact that technically we're supposed to have some sort of penitential practice on friday but no one thinks about it that right. way before or the advent is a season of penitence we don't think about that <laughs> yeah but it's that yeah we actually we we do penance in preparation for for this great party right it's like these fasting and feasting rhythms go together and you can see like the signs of this like great balance especially at the end of the seasons where you're sort of like wrapping up the old maybe you know <laughs> making good in the ways you're talking about like with rent like making good on on prior Absolutely. commitments 
like asking for forgiveness for where you've gone wrong in that season and mm-hmm. not carrying that ahead with you into the new one. So it's that like absolutely death and new life pattern <laughs> that is yes. so deeply, deeply Christian. Definitely. Um, and so, so a lot of this is associated with the harvest. We have a lot of, a lot of these things that were done in preparation for or on um, Michael Michael Moss um, have to do with food. Um, we have a lot of food going on, which is very typical of a feast day, obviously. If we're feasting, we're gonna have some food. Um, so a lot of, th- so we, this is generally in the UK and potentially Ireland, um, as those two places have quite an entwined history. So nuts were often harvested on St. Michael's Eve. Often apples were harvested around this time. Um, Carrots were harvested around this time, and it was the last days to harvest blackberries. So the blackberry thing is really interesting. So the idea is when, as we heard earlier, St. Michael, Michael cast Satan out of heaven, cast him down, the, the tradition is that he hit a blackberry bush and was stung by the brambles, and they got him. And he was very angry at this blackberry bush. So he cursed it. He spat on it. He urinated on it. And and after St. Michael's Day, blackberries are no longer good to eat because they have been contaminated with the bodily fluids of the devil himself. Yeah. So every year we remember that casting down. So, say with Michael, right. so it's like, okay, Satan's cast down sort of on Michaelmas then. It makes right. sense that after Michaelmas then... You would have this tainted blackberry. Yeah, we're not going to be doing that. So you got to make a pie, maybe, (laughs) and, like, use all your blackberries because they're no longer good after this day. So you have till September 29th. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Make a pie. (laughs) Um, So, and then there's some some really interesting things with the apples. So, of course, there's a pressing of the cider um, that would have been done around this time. But also, um, so you might be peeling apples for that pressing or for like other baked goods that you might be doing and when you're peeling the apples um often those the peels come off in different shapes yeah. and there was a sort of idea that maybe those shapes would would be letters that might tell you who would be your love um so there's that's one thing i was um, just peeling apples for uh for some apple pie the other day i should have been paying more attention you yeah. oh my gosh maybe you'd know maybe the initial would be there in the in the apple and then also if you cut an apple in half crosswise so you're getting not um not top to bottom but side to side um you you can see there's a star in the middle of yeah. the apple core and um that is a five-point star that people have associated with the five wounds of Christ, which mm. are so the crown, the two in the the two wounds, nail wounds in the hands, and the two nail wounds in the feet. Oh. Um, or no, it's not the crown. It's the side, not yeah. the not the crown. That's right. So the five the five wounds mm. of Christ. Um, t- and there's another. Okay, there's another sort of divination that would be going on where you hold an apple by the stem and then you give it a good rotation and a little twist and you've asked a question that's a yes or no question before and then you give it a good twist and if it falls off it might be yes or no it depends on what you've decided <laughs> so it's sort um, of like if it land if the coin lands heads up i'm gonna do this if, it lands right. heads, okay. if the apple falls off it's yes or maybe it's a no is one of those more likely to happen 
It Is there like a way you could sort of rig it for yourself? Oh, okay. I think. Or how strongly the... Yeah. So you could sort of give it a little tug, get yeah. the answer you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could rig it if you really wanted to. I don't know that that would help you all that much. Um, and another thing that was done was carving apple dolls. So this is kind of interesting, but you would um, like carve a, a head, like a shape of a head. So into... kind of like a pumpkin? No. Like if you've ever seen the people who carve, it would be like you'd carve parts of the skin off so you'd have like a relief. So parts oh. of the skin would be showing and parts of the flesh would be showing. And so you have that contrast yeah. of like red and white. Um, and so you get these, these like carved uh, faces and then people would hang them up in their roof uh, to dry. And then by Halloween, you'd have shrunken heads to hang around <laughs> and scare people with, which is kind of a fun idea. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> Get ready for your Halloween decorations. Yeah, yeah, it's like a perfect time. Um, another thing that we're, that we're harvested is uh, carrots. And this, in Scotland, there's a whole... Um, there's a whole like ritual around harvesting carrots uh, associated with Michaelmas, um, uh, and you would harvest them with a triangular hoe, and a oh no, you harvest in a triangular hole. You would carve a triangular hole in the ground, yeah, and which would represent Saint Michael's shield, and then you would pull them out with a three pronged mattock, which I. Hmm assume it's like kind of like a um like a fork yeah that you're i think i have one of those yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know it was called that but maybe that's a scottish thing and this represents saint michael's trident hmm. which i didn't i had never seen before but you know take your word for it <laughs> yeah um and so so anyway so the two if you get a two-pronged carrot that's supposed to be lucky oh yeah. so two-pronged like so like if it you has know it has like legs sense. yeah have you ever seen that picture of like the sexy carrot no is this a okay. meme uh no i <laughs> probably no one has seen that <laughs> i should probably not talk about that <laughs> but, you know, steve's internet <laughs> yeah gen z yeah we'll, we'll just blame it on that um okay so then also so the slaughter of a goose was also done on saint michael's and it was traditional to eat a goose on saint michael's and probably still is um but this comes from a story about saint patrick hmm. interestingly enough so St. Patrick was obviously known for converting Ireland. And so there was a king uh, in Ireland. So there were multiple kingdoms in, in ancient Ireland. And one of these kingdoms, ha- uh, his the king had hosted St. Patrick at a meal. He was considering conversion. And he choked on a goose. He choked and was about to die. And he, no, and he died. He died from choking on a goose at dinner. And St. Patrick brought him back to life. Oh. <laughs> and so, uh, and this was, I guess, around this time. So this is, this is how the, the goose came into the whole thing. Um, but they were also uh, often people who were slaughtering a goose for St. For Michael's Day would um, present a, a cooked goose as a gift to the poor. Or as in Ulster, some of the tenants would present this to the landlord. Now, that has a lot of political connotation. Wait, either because you're hoping as a gift or because you're hoping he chokes? That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) I would guess that it was a gift, which may or may not have been willingly given. (laughs) 
Got it. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So another thing that uh, was the traditional food of St. Michael's Day is the Struhan Michael. Um, that's Struhan is Scottish Gaelic. I do not speak Scottish Gaelic. Um, but it's also known as Bannock. So you may have heard, heard of that of one. Bannock. Yeah. It has its origins in the Hebrides. Um, and it's made with equal parts barley, oats, and rye, which are all products of this time of year. And you would make it without metal tools, which is quite an interesting thing. Um, and so you, it would be this, this, it's, it's essentially like a kind of hard scone type of bread. We would call it a scone in America. Um, it's, it, it can, yeah, it can be a little sweet. Often they'll put in some dried fruits. So, um, like maybe raisins or other like dried berries, but, uh, essentially it's like butter and grain and maybe some kind of sweetener and maybe some nuts or um, dried fruit. And we associate this with a lot of Saints Feast Days, right? Or quite a few in this part of the world. Yeah. I'm like this type of thing. I mean, yeah. breads of many kinds. Yeah, are... especially sort of festive. Yeah, definitely yeah. festive. Um, and so these would be blessed at the morning mass and then given to the poor and it was particularly in, in remembrance of the dead, which comes up a lot at this time of year. The, the seasons are changing, the leaves are falling, just starting to the sort of ripening of summer. And we're starting to think about death yeah. that comes in winter. Um, and interestingly, this, this bread was cooked in lambskin um, and gr- with grains that were moistened by sheep's milk. And it was cooked by the eldest daughter of the family, which is very interesting. The eldest daughter having a, a like particular role in baking comes up in a number of hmm. traditions. Like I think of, I think if I remember correctly, the Shabbat meal often has the eldest daughter as part of the ritual, um, and the, and these things. So and. She would she would say when she was uh, baking this bread, she would say in I think um, I think this is also said in Scottish Gaelic, but um, I have a translation here: progeny and prosperity of family, mystery of Michael, protection of the Trinity. So there's this idea that you would be invoking blessing into mm. the bread itself. Um, this is done with a lot of these kinds of meals, but. Um, they're very interesting to like read these uh, traditional blessings. So you can be the one to cook the yeah <laughs> to bake as the, the as the eldest girl of my family, middle I child. Can... <laughs> not my not my yeah. Job. You gotta get your sister to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's a lot of the general. It, there's a lot of harvest going on, and like this is the last day. Or this is around the time that aster flowers bloom. Mm. Um, these are called Michaelmas daisies or Michaelmas daisies. The, and there's a sort of little rhyme about the Michaelmas daisies among dead weeds bloom for St. Michael, Michael's valorous deeds. Oh, so they're late blooming flowers that are... Yeah, So even as everything else this, is dead. Right. They, so there's this cool. kind of like... This way that the, the earth itself is sort of celebrating St. Michael's feast day. Yeah. 
And so, so those are some of the like foods and and like the harvest and stuff. We also get uh, a number of things in sort of the category of procession and pilgrimage. So, um, procession. There's a lot of feast days with an associated procession in. The UK and Ireland, there's a procession with an effigy, uh, Micheline, um, um, which was uh, processed. So, so they would make this like effigy of Saint Michael and process him to the shore, um, which would mark the end of the fishing season. This was also sort of like the start of the hunt, hunting season, the end mm. of the fishing season, sort of the trading of the summer harvest for the autumn harvest. Um, so that's another thing. And we're also processing to the water again, mm. uh, which is associated with St. Michael in the tradition. He also has a holy well. Um, these were uh, wells across the UK and, and Ireland and probably some other... I would guess there's some in France as well because of the Celtic tribes um, that were in those, those places um, would have done this kind of thing. Um, but you would have a well uh, that was particularly devoted to a, a saint and you would go there often there's a particular ritual to be done at this well um, but and then you either drink or uh, bless yourself with the water mm. from the well um, often holy wells are associated with um, healing and uh, miracles so pilgrimage to this well would have been done probably on his feast day as well mm. but generally pilgrimage to his holy well would have been done throughout the year and yeah so then the the main sort of pilgrimage that is still currently done uh is the michael's sword and this is a series of seven churches that are arranged arranged in a straight line across mm. europe which is wild i don't think it's like a perfectly straight line but it's a pretty straight line um, and it runs from the southern coast of Ireland all the way to um, Israel. And there's a straight line across. Um, so the churches are Skellig Michael, which is an island off the south coast of Ireland, um, with a ruin of a monastery that had 12 monks. It's a very small island, so mm. they, they only allowed 12 monks to live there because there weren't room for more and they wanted to have this like apostolic yeah. number. And then St. Michael's Mont in Cornwall, uh, which is only accessible at low tide, um, which is similar to Mont Saint-Michel in France, um, which is also has a an only accessible at low tide thing yeah so michael and the waters that come in and out yeah, lots of association with definitely with and a lot yeah. of these are on the coast um there's also and then sacra di san michel in italy and santario di san michel also in italy and then there's a monastery in greece called santo monastero di taxarchi michael and then in israel there's uh, Monastero Stella Maris del Monte Carmelo, which is no is seen as the hilt of the sword. So mm. if these things are arranged in a straight line, that would be the hilt. Um, and it's interesting because this monastery is to Stella Maris or 
star of the sea, so that would be Mary, um, but it's considered part of this Michael's sword. The hilt of his sword is the church to Mary. Yeah. Which is oh, pretty interesting. Um, most of these uh, are a site of strife, and many are sort of lost to their Catholic identity. And not all of them. Uh, but, like, Mont Saint-Michel is still Catholic, but some of them have had... I think the one in Israel has changed hands a number of times, um, which is sort of interesting considering the like battle-focused imagery of St. Michael. Yeah. Um, and there's this idea that this, this line is like representing the banishing blow to Satan, um, but also this like reminder to walk a straight path. So you have this like... Yeah, the refrain from scripture to not swerve to the right or to the left. Right. Yeah. So there's very lots of like hard angles with Saint Michael, <laughs> um, and it's also perfectly aligned with the sunset uh, on the summer solstice. So there's this again this like connection to the natural cycles of the world. So so those are some of the the things that are done in Western Europe um, to honor Saint Michael. Some of them seem to have a direct connection to the stories that we hear, and some of them definitely have a lot to do with uh, broader themes of harvest and the turning of the seasons, the the gateway into autumn, the liminal space, similarly to a lot of his other... In his stories, he often sits in the liminal spaces, so it's interesting that his feast day also sits in the liminal liminal space. Yeah, the boundary between the boundary between seasons. Yeah, yeah, and especially between life and death, with summer, and right. then the the death that we associate with fall. Yeah, yeah, and the very real sort of idea that if you don't put away your food stores for the winter, there's the possibility of death, and that that would have been much more present to um, people of an earlier time, but is still present with us today. Yeah. And also with the layers here that we get between, like the, like liturgical life of the church, especially, yeah, saints' feast days, and and then the other layer of, of celebration, which is the seasonal, like grounded in like mm-hmm. the earth, um, and like the changing of the seasons. That this is something that's present in all of our religious holidays, right? It's like that we always Absolutely. have this layering of liturgical feasts on top of other feasts in a way that. And really, but it's folk practice that really allows you to see that and to see that in a relationship right. um, in a way that's really, really beautiful. Absolutely. And a lot of these folk practices, like, um, they sort of ride lines for people where uh, some people get, like, scared of folk practice because they think it's, oh, no, it's pagan. <laughs> or they think yeah. uh, there, there's parts of it that are Christian and that might scare other people. <laughs> but uh, folk practice always lives on the, on the lines between things. And... And what, what we do in our in our daily life and what kinds of rituals we participate in, um, they they move between all sorts of ideas and um, sort of show us our, our own cultures as a sort of mirror, uh, either either st- straight up or in some kind of distortion like the grotesque, the inversion. So we yeah. get all sorts of things from from our folk practices. Shall we close with with a blessing? Yeah. Um, So this is a blessing. It's a Hebridean blessing. I don't think I'll struggle through the the Gaelic. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a Scottish blessing. 
On St. Michael's Day, we will make a cake. We will partake of it in a joyful manner, as is proper. May Michaelmas be in on you.